beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you live for? When asked this question, people answer it in different ways. Many try to have a good time in life. Have a blast while you last. And they move on from one thrill to another. Others make getting as much money as possible their goal. They equate riches with happiness. And there are also people who live for their family, their wives or husbands, and their children if they have them. What's your purpose in life? What's your deepest source of joy? What's your primary goal? The Apostle John has been speaking about living in fellowship with God. And this is a privilege. It's also our calling. God is our creator. Why did God make us? He wants people to live in a relationship with him. Experiencing this brings great joy. In our relationship with him, we fulfill the purpose of our existence. We find meaning and direction in life. We delight in God together as his children. We share our joy with fellow believers. And so we come to the theme for this morning. God opens the way for us to live in fellowship with him. He gives us a demand. And then I'll combine points two and three. He gives us a demand and comfort and assurance. God opens the way for us to live in fellowship with him. He gives us, first of all, a demand. And secondly, comfort and assurance. The Apostle John has already stated the purpose of his letter in chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what a great and fundamental theme our faith involves more than just abiding by certain rules. It centers on the fact that God has established fellowship with us. And this gives form and substance to our lives as Christians. And what does it take to have fellowship with God? We need to understand who He is. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And those words in chapter 1, verse 5, remind us that he is holy. He hates sin. If we want to live in fellowship with him, we must accept this. Our actions should embody truth, not deception. Be faithful to what God has revealed in his word. And doing that isn't easy. It's a struggle for us to learn to turn away from sin. 
In our text for this morning, the Apostle John continues this train of thought. Look at how he begins. My little children. That's how he addresses his readers. Does that sound odd to you? The Apostle John wrote these words toward the end of his life. He was about 85 years old, older than most of his readers. He had been a follower of Jesus Christ since he was a young man. And compared to him, his readers were young in the faith. They were like little children. He was like a father to them. And they had much to learn about living in fellowship with God. He had more to teach them. And so he tells them in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Never treat sin lightly. Don't think it doesn't matter how we live as long as we believe in Jesus Christ. God is light. He is holy, and he calls us to be holy. Do you claim to be a church member? Is this clear in your life? How's your language at home, at work, or among your friends? Are you quick to use filthy language or even swear words when you get upset? Are your morals questionable? Are you careful how you interact with people of the opposite sex? What about the kinds of films you watch, the magazines or books that you read, or places you go to? Does your conscience ever bother you? If it does, do you shrug it off? Why? Are you counting on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to cover your sins? The Apostle Paul gives a warning in Romans 6, the verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What's Paul's point? Our unity with Jesus Christ involves the crucifixion of our old self and new life through him. And that's why Paul summons us not to offer the parts of our bodies to sin, but to offer ourselves to God in serving him. In our text, the Apostle John is making the same point. Knowing that God is light, we must walk in the light. And God has taught us how to walk with him. And don't violate those instructions if you treasure his presence in your life. Some sins come through negligence. We're not constantly on guard against sin. We don't always seek to please God with our whole lives. It's also possible to become self-satisfied as Christians. And that's a sin too. Then we have this feeling that we have already arrived. 
We feel comfortable with our daily and weekly routines. Prayers can become empty phrases. Going to church can degenerate into an empty habit. And then there's no active spiritual life anymore. We don't strive to live in fellowship with God, conscious of his presence in this world and in our lives. And the effort to become holy becomes a matter of following rules instead of focusing on God. And what happens if our spiritual life becomes hollow? Something else will fill the vacuum. We will no longer live for God, letting his truth govern our lives. Instead, we will end up living for ourselves. We will base our actions on feelings, desires, or personal opinions. Lots of people live like that. It's a worldly way of life. It's a life of sin. You can't walk in the light without following the law of God. He tells us how to live. Sin disrupts our fellowship with God. And the canons of Dort, one of the three forms of unity that we subscribe to together, the canons of Dort describe how Christians sometimes sin in serious ways. They speak of the lamentable fall of David, Peter, and other saints. And chapter 5, article 5, says the following. By such gross sins, they greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense of God's favor until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly face again shines upon them. Consider the effects listed there. God is our almighty creator. He is our Father through Jesus Christ. When we sin, we greatly offend God. That's the worst part about sin. We dishonor him who has given us his law. When we reject his will for our lives, we are making a statement. We're putting our own thoughts our own preferences, our own desires in the place of God's will. And that's rebellion against him. When you sin, ask yourself some critical questions. What am I doing? Am I wiser than God to prefer to do this instead of doing his will? Do I know better than he does what's best for me? Is it preferable to go alone or to walk with him in the light? When we sin, we bring guilt upon ourselves. 
Sin deserves to be punished. And the punishment for sin is death, not just physical death, but also spiritual death. That involves being cut off from fellowship with God forever, being deprived of all his blessings and exposed to his wrath. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of believers. When you sin, perhaps you think, No one knows about it. You might hide what you do from other people, but you can never hide it from the Holy Spirit who lives in you. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, the Apostle Paul warns us, and do not grieve the Spirit of the Holy... Sorry. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieving the Holy Spirit will cause a sense of spiritual emptiness. In Psalm 51, the verses 11 to 12, we see David was very concerned about this after his adultery with Bathsheba. He pleads with God, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sin causes us to suspend the exercise of faith, as the Canons of Dort put it. If you have sinned, and not yet repented, you will notice a distance between yourself and God. And then you don't feel like reading the Bible. Prayers may continue for a while, but your heart is not really in them. You no longer ask yourself what God's will is as you go about your daily activities. And sin also wounds our consciences. If you know you've done something wrong, you don't feel good about it. It eats away at your self-esteem. It can lead to depression. Your conscience resonates with the Word of God. You know you stand condemned. David cries out to God with this knowledge when he finally confesses his sin to God. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If we continue in sin, we should not be surprised if we lose the sense of God's favor. That's another quote from the Canons of Dort. Lose the sense of God's favor. Have you ever had that? You know you've done something wrong, and you no longer have a sense of peace with God. Is there a way to remove the offense and the guilt? Is there a way back to full fellowship with God? Yes, all of this is possible. 
The Apostle John doesn't leave us hanging with an admonition that we should not sin. He knows we need to hear the demand to stay away from sin. He's also realistic. We no longer continually sin like unbelievers do, but we still fall into sin. And John already highlighted this in chapter 1. Look at John 1, verse, 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The many sins in our lives are signs of our sinfulness. Do you look back on your life and see many sins? How often we have offended God and grieved the Holy Spirit. And this not only takes place by what we do, it also happens when we fail to do what should be done. Don't you see many lost opportunities for service? Our consciences testify that we are sinners who deserve to be condemned. And the good news is that there is forgiveness. God forgives us on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, his son. And there's also the promise of further grace that John points to in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise that is. But remember what the demand is. Believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we receive forgiveness and cleansing through faith in Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us by dying on the cross to atone for our sins. But there's more. Think about what God continues to do in our lives. He works in us through his word and spirit to purify us from all unrighteousness. And that process won't be completed until we go to be with our Savior. Our God opens the way for us to live in fellowship with him. He demands that we stay away from sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. He also gives comfort and assurance. And this is our next point. Do you find it difficult to find the right words to approach God when you've sinned? Maybe you wonder if your confession was enough. Never despair. Listen to the comfort of our text in the second part of chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle John stresses it, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is someone who speaks in your defense. 
That's what Jesus Christ does for us. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ pleads for you. He lays all our needs before our Father in heaven. And did you notice that the apostle includes himself as one who needs Jesus Christ as his advocate? Look at how he makes this clear in verse 1 of our text. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The apostle is already old. He has many years of experience and has gained much wisdom. But he knows he still needs Jesus Christ to plead for him with the Father. He doesn't elevate himself above us, but stands beside us. All who believe in Jesus Christ must look to him to speak for them to the Father. Our sins are many. We continue to sin. Why should God the Father listen to Jesus Christ? Will our advocate receive a positive answer to what he says on our behalf? Can we be sure of that? The apostle gives us a profound answer to such questions. Note what he writes concerning Jesus Christ. He calls him the righteous one. Our advocate has fulfilled all the demands of God's law for us. When a lawyer has to defend a criminal in court, he might try various strategies. He may say words, good words, about the defendant, hoping that this will sway the judge to be lenient. Maybe he will try to minimize the seriousness of the offense. The objective is to give the impression that what was done was not all that bad, or that it was not meant to be so harmful. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He knows that taking such an approach would not sway God to decide in our favor. There's only one way for us to escape from condemnation. Christ's righteousness must become our righteousness. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus Christ remained faithful to the word of God. As our mediator, he carried out his task perfectly. He kept all the demands of God's law for us. When we trust in him, his obedience comes in the place of our disobedience. Why? Because he came to take the place of sinners. The Apostle John emphasizes how great the saving work of Jesus Christ is. Look at verse 2 of our text. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
What do those words at the end of our text mean? The words propitiation for our sins means that he has turned away the wrath of God by his atoning sacrifice. He has turned away the wrath of God. He bore the punishment we deserve by dying on the cross for us. The wrath of God against our sins came down upon him. He took this burden upon himself willingly. He paid the price with his own blood. That's why he has the right to speak for us. God will never refuse him. And the last part of verse 2 about it being for the sins of the whole world requires some further explanation. To interpret these words, we must apply some basic Reformed principles for understanding Scripture. One basic rule to keep in mind is that all of Scripture has been inspired by God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God is breathed out by God. That's what inspired means. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Many people have been involved in writing it, all those different books. But God is the primary author. And that's why we can speak of the unity of all of Scripture. It is true in all its parts because the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write what they did. And this means that one passage's interpretation shouldn't go against what Scripture teaches in other parts. God doesn't contradict himself. So compare Scripture with Scripture to find the right meaning. Interpret texts that are less clear in the light of texts that are more clear. Any conclusion drawn from one passage should be in harmony with the rest of the Bible. And keeping this in mind, let's reflect on the final part of our text. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world? What does John mean when he refers to the world? Our text is not the only verse in Scripture where this question can be raised. Another example would be John 1 verse 29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? Has Jesus taken away the sins of every single person in the history of the world? If Jesus had really atoned for the sins of every single person in the world, then there's really only one possible conclusion. 
no one will be lost. After all, if he has atoned for everyone's sins, no one can be punished. God is just. He doesn't demand punishment twice for the same sin. Has Jesus taken away the sins of every person in the history of the world? And the obvious answer is no. The conclusion that Jesus takes away everyone's sins goes against what Scripture teaches elsewhere. There's not only heaven, but there's also hell. And Jesus Christ himself warned people about hell as the place of unquenchable fire. As the Lamb of God, Jesus does not take away the sins of every person in the world. And then what does John mean in our text? What do the words the whole world refer to? They obviously don't apply to everyone without exception. What the apostle means is that Jesus Christ is more than just the savior of a certain group of people in one particular place. He is the savior of all kinds of people throughout the world. John is focusing attention on the worldwide scope of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And think of what Jesus Christ said about himself in the passage we read in John chapter 10. Let's focus for a moment on John 14, the verses 14 through 16. Those words speak of the wide extent of his grace. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus Christ spoke those words to Jews. He is the good shepherd who intends to lay down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? They can be recognized as people who listen to his voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd. He gathers his sheep not only from among Jews, but from all the peoples of the world. He unites us all as one flock under himself as the one shepherd. Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring us into fellowship with God. He did more than just pay the price so that we might be saved. He paid with his blood to save us. His sacrifice is an atoning sacrifice, a payment for sin. 
It's powerful and effective throughout the world. No other sacrifice is enough. Think of the new song sung in heaven about his redemptive work. Look at Revelation 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The words in the book of Revelation show us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ wasn't only for the Jews. It is worldwide in its extent. He didn't shed his blood for everyone in the world without exception. He ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that highlights the awesome privilege of belonging to God's people. We are precious in his sight. People who have been redeemed, ransomed, paid for by the blood of our Savior. Rely on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Turn to him who has turned away the wrath of God and obtained forgiveness and life for us. He has paid the full price for our salvation. Never doubt this. Remember the scope of the promise in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever, should not perish, but have eternal life. Not might have, have eternal life. God guarantees everlasting fellowship to all who turn to him in faith. Praise him for giving us his only son to be our Savior. Amen.